Sad news this week. On October 13th, retired NASA astronaut General James Alton McDivitt died, aged 93. And today we pay our respects. And to celebrate the life of the commander of Gemini 4 and Apollo 9, we're joined by renowned space historian and author Andrew Chaikin, author of one of the greatest books about the Apollo program, A Man on the Moon. If you ever met the general or have a favorite story which we don't talk about today, please do let us know via our social media pages at Space and Things 1 on Twitter and at Space and Things Podcast on Instagram and Facebook or via the contact form on our website. Yeah, we would absolutely love to hear those stories. But right now, this is episode 112 of the Space and Things Podcast. I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles, and welcome to episode 112 of our podcast. It's another one of those weeks where we've got sad news to report. We had other things planned for this week, but once we heard this news, we knew we had to scrap those and, and give a full tribute to Jim McDivitt. As we said in the intro, we're joined once again by Andy Chaikin, and we'll get to that in a bit. But before we do, Emily will read some of her obituary, which she posted on Space Hipsters on Monday. General James Alton McDivitt died on October 13th at age 93. As an experimental research plane pilot before his career at NASA, he flew as Robert M. White's X-15 chase pilot and was in line to participate in the X-15 program. However, he instead decided to apply to the next group of NASA's astronauts selected in September 1962. He was selected, and as they say, the rest is history. In June 1965, alongside best friend and fellow Group 2 astronaut Edward H. White II, he flew as command pilot of the Gemini 4 mission to test several major objectives required to fly to the moon, Rendezvous and Extravehicular Activity, or EVA. McDivitt attempted to rendezvous with the upper stage of the mission's Titan II rocket, but this was unsuccessful due to NASA's lack of understanding at the time of orbital mechanics. But within months, however, the accomplishment of rendezvous would be fulfilled. The EVA objective was successful, with McDivitt's spectacular photos of Ed White floating in space becoming some of the most famous and iconic images of the space age. McDivitt was particularly proud of these photos and considered them among the most beautiful space photos ever taken. I have to agree with him. The mission boasting the first U.S. EVA in space ended with a rolling atmosphere reentry as the Gemini flight computer had failed again showing that a pilot was required to accomplish key flight milestones in space. In 1966, it was announced that McDivitt was the backup commander for the first crewed Apollo flight, Apollo 1. Later, he would be assigned as a prime crew commander to fly the second Apollo mission, which would rendezvous the lunar module and the service module. However, due to the Apollo 1 tragedy, the fire in January 1967, no space flights would be made during that calendar year. Fast forward to March 1969, Apollo 9 launched triumphantly, carrying, to quote McDivitt himself, <laughs> the Apollo program's most handsome crew into Earth's orbit. McDivitt, alongside Command Module Pilot Dave Scott and Lunar Module Pilot Rusty Schweikert, finally made their flight. For 10 days, the crew worked on accomplishing milestones that made the LEM ready for the next two Apollo flights. Apollo 10, which was the lunar landing dress rehearsal, and Apollo 11, which was the first lunar landing. 
In Al Warden's memoir, The Light of Earth, he remembered, Jim was a good commander. He knew what he wanted to do and then how to do it. He was all business, and so everybody else got into that kind of mode. He was very decisive about things, but was also really nice. He was not a hard driver or anything. Following Apollo 9, McDivitt became the manager of the Apollo spacecraft program. One of his decisions, he later joked, was his role in involving launching Apollo 12 through a thunderstorm. In 1972, he was promoted to Brigadier General in the U.S. Air Force. Following his retirement from NASA in 1972, he worked in various private and public companies. Although he retired in 1995, many space enthusiasts met him at Space Fests and Astronaut Scholarship Foundation events, enjoying his witty and roguish personality as he shared space stories. Jim had a great career in the business world after NASA and did really well. He's an exceptionally nice guy and really smart, Warden wrote in the light of Earth. A pioneer in the realm of early spaceflight and a wonderful man to encounter at space events, McDivitt will be truly missed. We send our condolences to McDivitt's family, former colleagues, and friends. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engines running. Commit. Liftoff. We have liftoff at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Andy, thank you so much for joining us on such short notice to pay our respects to the general. These things are never easy. So to start with, Jim McDivitt was part of the second astronaut group, which is probably one of the finest groups that was ever hired by NASA. So tell us a little bit about the significance of this particular group and why they kind of represented a departure from the Mercury 7, the previous group. In a lot of ways, that second group uh, you know, they were sometimes called the new nine. They really kind of set the standard for what was to follow because the Mercury seven were selected as much as anything, not only for piloting skill, but for being superb medical specimens. So that, that actually with some of the original seven, um, was a, a greater concern than what particular aircraft they had flown or whether they had flown the hottest jets or, or that kind of a thing as test pilots and so forth. The second group were all test pilots and they were all really considered fine examples from the test flying world. You know, Neil Armstrong had flown the X-15, which is about as uh, lofty a position as you had in those days as a test pilot. John Young had sent set a speed record in a brand new aircraft. You know, there were all kinds of, of qualifications like that sprinkled among the group. But I have to say that, you know, that something I've heard again and again, management at NASA, particularly at the Manned Spacecraft Center in Houston, considered McDivitt as one of the, the top one or two guys in the entire program. They just really thought highly of him for a number of reasons. Yeah, let's zero in in on McDivitt then. So what do you think made him well qualified for his role in Gemini 4 and Apollo 9 as the first ever flyer of the lunar module? Well, you know, McDivitt came to NASA with a very impressive resume as a, as a test pilot, and he'd flown in Korea as a fighter pilot. And he just, he really was highly thought of for his not only his piloting skill, but his managerial 
talent. He was a very good crew commander, um, which is, you know, among other things, is kind of a management position. You're kind of, you know, in charge of not only your crew, but of the effort to get ready for the mission from the crew's standpoint, the training, you know, what needs to be on the training syllabus, that kind of thing, uh, where they should be putting their energies. He was a very down-to-earth guy. He was not an ego, although he was confident in his own abilities. I think all of that kind of added up to this is a, a guy that we want to have in the action sooner rather than later. And I think that explains why, you know, he was chosen to be the first in his group to command a Gemini flight with Gemini 4 in June of 1965. And then having done such a good job on that flight, he was made an early Apollo commander. He was actually the backup commander to Gus Grissom's crew, the Apollo 1 crew, which, of course, um, tragically perished in the uh, capsule fire during a, a pre-launch practice countdown. After the fire, McDivitt moved up to command the first piloted mission of the Apollo lunar module, which was a very big deal, a major step in the progression that uh, Houston had worked out to get to the ultimate goal of landing on the moon. So later, and you've already touched on this a little bit, he did enter management and to my knowledge was one of the first and only Apollo astronauts to enter really such a role. So how did that set the template for other future astronauts up till present day to enter such roles? You know, among the, the managers in Houston who thought highly of, of McDivitt was the Apollo spacecraft program manager, George Lowe who himself was one of the most highly regarded people in the entire agency. Lowe took over after the fire to lead the recovery from the accident, the redesign effort of the command module, all of the problems that needed to be solved in the wake of the fire with the spacecraft and other Apollo hardware like the suits and backpacks. All of that fell under George Lowe's responsibility. But, you know, by the time you get to the spring of 1969, Lowe is looking ahead to, hey, it looks like we're actually going to be able to pull this off with Apollo 11. It hadn't happened yet, but it was impending. And so Lowe began to think about who did he want as his successor. And he actually recruited Jim McDivitt into his organization after McDivitt came back from Apollo 9 and kind of groomed him to become his successor and McDivitt took over in round about September of 69 when Lowe uh, moved up to NASA headquarters to become deputy administrator under Tom Payne. And at that point, McDivitt was running the Apollo effort in Houston. And he had a tremendous amount of responsibility. You know, he was in the, in the hot seat for some pretty important decisions like on Apollo 12 after they got hit by lightning. And, you know, they made it into Earth orbit. They were checking out the spacecraft. Nobody knew if the spacecraft had been damaged by the lightning in some way that they might not be able to detect. And McDivitt had to make the call. Do we continue and let these guys go out to the moon or do we abort the mission and bring them home? And McDivitt made the call. Yeah, let's go. Let's go for it. Let's go to the moon. 
that was in November of 69. Flash forward to April of, of 72, Apollo 16 is orbiting the moon, and uh, John Young and Charlie Duke have uh, separated in their lunar module, Orion, leaving uh, Ken Manningly as the command module pilot in the command module Casper. And uh, there was a problem with the pointing of the command service module's big engine, the one that was utterly essential, not only to make periodic fixes in the orbit, but to get them out of lunar orbit and back to Earth when the time came to leave the moon. So they were going over the data from the engine. What in the world was going on? The engine was kind of wobbling back and forth as they try, as Manningly tried to um, to steer the engine nozzle into a particular position in preparation for a burn. McDivitt was the one who made the call. Hey, we've got this. We understand it. We're safe enough to let Young and Duke go down and land on the moon and continue with the mission. So wow. twice he made these calls that that saved missions. Of course, he was also in that role during the Apollo 13 ordeal after the oxygen tank exploded. So, you know, he really acquitted himself beautifully in that management role with a tremendous amount of responsibility on his plate. And it took a long time before astronauts were in management positions like that again. I want to say it wasn't until after Challenger uh, that an astronaut really moved up into that kind of level of responsibility. But McDivitt certainly set a standard. It's one of those great conundrums. Well, I think it's a great conundrum. You might be able to shed some light on it. That of the new nine, of the seven that flew in the Apollo program, he was the only one that didn't go to the moon. Uh, and obviously he, he then managed the program and went took that back seat. He's, he's very much kind of like the quiet guy, isn't he? The one that doesn't get the praise of that group, despite the fact he was held with such high regard. Do you know if there's if he had any regret about not going to the moon? Or do you know uh, if that was a thing for him, that, that it, he just didn't care about it? Actually, he was bothered about the whole thing instead. What, what Do you know much about that side of it? Well, I asked him about that when I was writing my book, A Man on the Moon, and I, I said, you know, what's what's up with that? You know, how come you didn't stay to land on the moon, you know, like like all of your colleagues wanted to do? And he said that, uh, you know, he said he would have liked to have landed on the moon, but he really would have liked to have been the first to command a lunar landing mission. He wasn't as excited about commanding the third or the fourth lunar landing mission. Now, Deke Slayton in his book, the one that he uh, did with Michael Cassett, excellent book, Deke said that he offered McDivitt the chance to fly Apollo 13 as Al Shepard's lunar module pilot. Now, of course, <laughs> that crew ended up getting swapped. It would have been Apollo 14. Regardless of that, Apparently, according to Slayton, McDivitt did not want to fly as a lunar module pilot. He wanted to fly as a commander. And he also wanted his old Apollo 9 crew to go with him. Well, by that time, you know, Dave Scott already had his own crew. They were going to be the backups to Apollo 12. And Rusty Schweikart was already off working on Skylab. And so, you know, that wasn't going to work. But the other factor was, and I found this very striking about Jim McDivitt, he saw more to life than flying. 
Mm. You know, he really enjoyed his time as a test pilot. He really enjoyed his, his time as an astronaut. He said he wouldn't trade it for anything, but he felt that there were other things to do in life. He wanted to have a chance to run a big aerospace effort. Um, whether it was from the government side or the industry, industry side, he got the chance to do that by succeeding George Lowe as the Apollo spacecraft program manager. Then after that, you know, he wanted to go into to business and have a management role there. And he really got great satisfaction out of his post-NASA career. He had a, a vice president position with a major utility company. And then after that, with uh, a, a, an executive position with a major railroad company. And he looked back on those with as much satisfaction as any other phase of his career. It's so weird for me because you look back at those people and we put them on pedestals, perhaps incorrectly, uh, but we put them on pedestals as heroes uh, and as almost superhuman people because they achieved these things. Yeah, actually... Th- they didn't necessarily see it in such the same ways that we did. They saw it as just another job that they had to do and that they wanted to do, right? Well, no, I wouldn't make, I see, I wouldn't say that as a blanket statement. Okay. What I found from my conversations with them was that there's a spectrum of attitudes. There's a spectrum of reactions to the experience of going to the moon, of flying in space. And there are some really interesting variations. Now, you take a guy like Dick Gordon. Dick had been uh, one of the top test pilots in the country before he was selected as an astronaut, flew on Gemini 11 with Pete Conrad, and then as command module pilot on Apollo 12. And Dick, as much as he felt a great sense of accomplishment from his two previous space flights, you know, from Apollo 12 going to the moon with Pete Conrad and Al Bean, Dick felt very strongly that the name of the game was to walk on the moon. Mm. And he was very disappointed not to get a chance to do that uh, when Apollo 18 was canceled. That would have been his flight. He was the backup commander for Apollo 15 and would have rotated into command of Apollo 18, but it was canceled while he was on the backup crew. Mm. Um, So he never got the chance. He felt very disappointed about that. And, you know, then moved on with his life at that point. And after Apollo 15 ended up leaving NASA. And there were other guys who felt the same way. I think Jim is more in the minority in the sense of there are other things in life to do besides flying. I mean, I think, you know, a guy like Jim Lovell, who got to fly four times, as much as he would have liked to have landed on the moon after Apollo 13, he felt like, you know, we got back alive. I'm lucky that we got through that. He always felt that way. He always felt like, uh, you know, every day was a bonus in his life after that. He felt okay about leaving NASA, letting the younger, the other guys, some of the younger guys maybe get a chance at their missions rather than getting back in line for another mission. Do you think perhaps with Jim, the, the close friendship with Ed White played into that? You know, losing one of your best buddies and, and, perhaps as seeing a bigger picture or am I just extrapolating my own theories there? Yeah. I mean, it's really easy to kind of, for all of us to kind of read our own thoughts into these guys. I don't think so. I don't think that that played into the decision at all. He never mentioned it as a factor in the decision in, in any of his oral histories that I've seen. 
I think it was just that he had this more broad, this broader view of his life and his career. He was certainly very close to Ed White, and I'm sure that loss hit him pretty hard. It would only be yeah. human, you know. But I don't think it played a, a role in his career decisions. I I was at an ASF event like ten years ago, and it to me it summed him up so well. Like somebody approached him and asked him like a very technical question about Gemini Four, like something very like super. I forgot what it was, but it was something that like diehards only care about. And Jim, I'll never forget this. He was like, "Man, that was like fifty years ago. I I don't remember that. I don't even know. I'm I'm an old man. I, I don't even know what I had for breakfast." And I was like. <laughs> Like he was just so like casual, but I, and I think I, I kind of eavesdropped on him because I, I, I love Jim McDivitt. I, at one point he was like, man, I only did this for like a few years. <laughs> you, know? you have to show, I hope in this podcast, you will show that picture from Space Nest of you and me at a table. And it was the first time you and I had met and Jim McDivitt came over. And we were talking to him and uh, it's just a great, it's a great picture. Jim was probably saying something, you know, slightly risque to evoke the expression that you have in that photo. Well, let me, let me tell you, Andy, uh, before we started doing this podcast, Emily and I did a pilot episode, which only Emily and I have heard. And we put it on Patreon, uh, but it was very early on. So I don't know if our new patrons have scrolled back far enough to hear it. But that's the story of that Emily told me during that pilot episode. And it was at that point I realized this was going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, it was such a great story. And Emily did a great Jim McDivitt impression during that, which may maybe she'll do now. Who knows? But yeah, she did the impression. It was hysterical. Like, uh, well, what, what I remember was... Um... I had a question about the apogee of Gemini 4's orbit and I asked you and you're like, well, why don't you go ask him? And I turn around. I'm like, oh, my God, it's Jim McDivitt. <laughs> so I look over and he came over to our table because he's like, hey, Andy, how are you doing? You know, and and you're like, oh, this young lady has a question for you. And I was like, um, yes, sir, general. Um, what was the apogee of Gemini 4? Like very, you know, scared of him. He, no reason to be scared. He's like. Yeah, it was around 100 miles, give or take. As long as you don't fall down, you'll be okay. And I was like, oh, yeah. my God. But, yeah, I think um, one the thing that made me cackle, like the facial expression in that picture was he was talking about a book he had written a chapter for, and the chapter was called CLC, Career Limiting Caper, which is the military term when you, um, when you uh, screw up so bad your career is over. Yeah, that's a book that um, I found out about yesterday when I was looking at um, Rob Perlman's story about about Jim on CollectSpace, and it's called The Friday Pilots, uh, the book. And it's a, it's each chapter is written by a different pilot, this group that used to get together for lunch and trade war stories. And yeah, exactly. Career-limiting capers is, is Jim's chapter. Final question. With all this in mind, Andy, do you have any other stories of, of Jim you know, from meeting him at Space Fest or your interviews with him that you conducted for a man in the moon to show you what kind of person he was? Well, you know, I I know that the other guys, uh, you know, for example, his crewmates just thought the world of him and said he was the best and talked about how down to earth he was, how nothing went to his head. He was just 
confident, sure-footed, and a great sense of humor, they said. You could just tell how much they were grateful to have been on his crew and have flown Apollo 9 with him. And that was a very demanding flight. I mean, I think I think it actually speaks a lot about Jim McDivitt. And the, the record is a little hazy on this because Jim had one version of the story and Deke had another version of the story. But apparently Deke offered him the chance to fly the Apollo 8 circumlunar flight if he really wanted it. I mean, he, he said, I'm going to give it to Borman unless you really protest. And Jim said, nope, he wanted to stay with his lunar module, first piloted flight of the lunar module. You know, for a test pilot, that's a very, very big deal. Um, so that, you know, just kind of makes perfect sense. But also, in a lot of ways, Apollo 8, is, as important as it was, it was a huge milestone. It had a tremendous impact on the program. But Apollo 9, in a kind of quieter way, was just as important, just as critical, and in some ways more demanding. I mean, an 11-day flight with a, a flight plan that was just packed with stuff. and Pulling all that together and kind of making sure that it all went off the way it was supposed to, that was on Jim's plate. And Apollo 9 is, as much as anything, is a fabulous legacy to to Jim McDivitt and his his talents. Yeah, there's that great scene in uh, From the Earth to the Moon, the TV show that was from your book, where he has to tell Dave Scott and Rusty how much they've got to do on this mission. And they're like, can you even do that? And he's like, well, probably not. It looks impossible, but it sounds like fun. And I don't, obviously it's fictional, uh, fictionalization of, of yeah. uh, and dramatization of what may have happened. But uh, I just love that scene. And you can hear in what you're saying there, eh, it probably was like that in some yeah. ways. I think he said something like, if we get half of it done, we'll be, we'll be in great shape. I can't wait. And um, I remember meeting the actor who played Jim, and I thought he was great. I thought he really evoked Jim's uh, energy very nicely. Yeah, he absolutely did. So Emily did say it's the last question, but have you got anything else you would like to bring up, perhaps? I would be remiss if I did not mention the fact that Jim, as commander of Gemini 4, took what are arguably among the most iconic pictures ever taken in space, namely the photographs he took of Ed White making the first U.S. spacewalk. And, you know, Jim told that story in many, many venues over the years that Gemini was pretty small, as I'm sure everybody knows, very, very tiny little cabin. And Jim talked about the fact that He's very tall from the waist up. He said he has a had a very tall sitting height. So his head was kind of crammed up near the hatch and the window is down here and he had to hold the camera down sort of below eye level to get the pictures. And he wasn't, I, I, if I'm remembering correctly, he wasn't totally sure how they'd come out. <laughs> wow. But boy, did they come out. I don't know if you've seen Andy Saunders' new book, Apollo Remasters. It's a collection of photos, mainly from the Apollo program, but 
uh, has sets a scene with some Gemini photos as well, including some from that mission. Obviously, the famous ones of Ed White outside uh, the spacecraft, but there's some great shots which they both took inside the spacecraft as well, which really blew me away. But he's the cover boy of that book, a great photo of him from Apollo 9, which is really something. Andy's done great work with that, but I mean, I have to say, I came across that picture of Jim quite a few years ago when those uh, scans got put up online. And I remember coming across it and just being almost shocked. And you look at the raw version and it looks pretty washed out, but then you you put it into Photoshop and you do some contrast enhancement and so forth. And it's a beautiful shot. And it's the only picture of an astronaut in flight flying the lunar module. Mm. A great shot. He's got stubble on his face from having been in space for several days. He's in his full pressure suit with the bubble helmet. He's looking up through the rendezvous window. So he's clearly flying the the LAM, the ascent stage in the rendezvous with uh, the command service module. And he's just got a a great kind of confident, uh, excited, you know, uh, expression on his face and it's a beautiful picture it's my favorite picture of mcdivitt ever yeah i love absolutely. it absolutely all right well uh, andy thank you so much for joining us this has been really great thank you very much uh and hopefully we'll speak to you again soon my pleasure thanks a lot for having me thank you how does that support car handle Jim? pretty nice oh andy's great isn't he yes he's awesome he brought up a lot of amazing things about McDivitt's career that, you know, I hadn't really thought about. Like we think of Jim McDivitt, the the picture, right? The astronaut, the guy on the cover of Apollo Remastered. We don't really think of him as a as a great manager, I guess. Do you know what I'm saying? You don't hmm. think of him in that role, but he really was, you know, and I, I love how Andy kind of emphasized that because I think he really sent set a template for maybe not immediately, but for, you know, astronauts in the future who went on to run, you know, centers. Or administrators. Exactly, or administrators. I think he set a template for that kind of astronaut, like that that kind of pipeline you can get into. I, I think it also, and I might be putting my own spin on this, but I think it also speaks to McDivitt's sort of lack of ego because he could have gone back and, you know, flown another moon mission or something like that, but... You know, maybe he felt a little more sort of like, okay, this is something I would do better at. Or maybe this is something that's more suited to what I'm interested in, you know, being a program manager, like a Margot Madison type role versus, you know, (laughs) Molly Cobb or something like that, being up front. I'm sure you agree uh, with me. I I think we've talked enough that you would you might agree is Apollo 9 was so underrated. They didn't go to the moon. But still, it's one of the baddest missions ever. The photos are incredible. The The picture from Apollo Remastered that's on the cover is just exquisite. The photos are great because obviously it's in Earth orbit. We normally see the lunar module and the, and the command module in lunar orbit where the reflections are all from this gray rock. But when you've got the Earth there and you've got all these blues and the greens also in, into the photos, it, there's just something quite magical about those Apollo 9 images, aren't there? Yeah, it's beautiful. Like um, somebody put a picture on Twitter, or not a picture, a video, I should say, uh, on Twitter, and it showed like um, footage from inside the lunar module during Apollo 9. And it's just mine. It looks like something 
from the future, but it's not. It's from 1969, which is just nuts. I do have to add, Spider was a really good episode of From the Earth to the Moon. That's one of my favorites. Yeah, it's in my top three. <laughs> yeah, I love, I love Spider, mainly because the actor who plays McDivitt is so good. It's so good. It's so good. Like, you really believe it's him because he has yeah. a lot of his little, like, sort of mannerisms, you know? Yeah, and the soundtrack to that one is amazing. It's got that little... Do, 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 yes. which is just, oh, just it makes me tear up every time I hear it. Uh, it's a great episode. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but a great mission. And, and, and yeah, what, what a loss. I mean, he's old. He was 93. Well done. Well done, Jim, for reaching that old. But, life. but it doesn't, doesn't make it any easier uh, when we lose these, these, as I said, we put these people on pedestals, don't we? And, and, I mean, there's there's a whole conversation to be had about whether we should do that or not, but we do do it. And, you know, when you look at what they achieved back then and what they were trying to achieve and what, what the pressure they were under, they must have felt. And the fact that, you know, they, these people also saw their friends die. All those things, all those things you factor in, I think it's worthy of some kind of pedestal. I, I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm into it, but it, it feels like they're worthy of being held up as a people that did things, did big things. And in the case of Jim, I'm sure he had an ego. All of them had an yeah, ego. Yeah, most, most but, people have an ego. But but didn't wear it outwardly like some others did. You know, actually was able to step back and go, I'll, I'll happily do this management role. I'll, I'll be the bigger picture. I'll be the quiet guy in the back room, which I think is a really under underrated trait in people that you can go from being the commander of an Apollo mission to being the backroom guy. I think that's an incredible trait to be able to do both of those things and be respected and do both of those jobs. Well, I know there are similarities in terms of management and all that kind of stuff, but they're completely different. Exactly. Uh, personality traits. Exactly. I, I think he should just be held on a pedestal just for agreeing to do Apollo nine, because like Andy said, if you look at the mission objectives and they're in, and the mission plans, I mean, there was just so much. Like, I look at that and my, my heart starts racing because I'm like, there's no way. Like, if I was assigned to, I'd be like, no, nah, I'm good. I, I'll I'll fly like 17, maybe the last one or one that doesn't do any. Well, 17 did a lot, too. You know, I'm not this yeah. in 17. They, I mean, it was just like chock full of stuff they had to accomplish because Apollo 10 was a dress rehearsal. And then 11 was the actual landing, which is just nuts. And that's within a span of six uh, month period. Yeah. Yeah. Less than six months they had to get. Yeah. I mean, that's just crazy to me that they they did that, you know, like March, April, May, June, four months. They had four, four months. months. To do that. Oh, my God. How did this like it took me four months to heal up from a surgery, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and that's that much time they had to get, you know, okay, we're going to test this thing and see if it even works to, okay, we're going to land it on the moon. But that speaks to the success of Apollo 9. It really does. And Jim McDivitt's leadership, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and Andy is a storyteller there, you know, <laughs> showing showing his worth once again isn't he he's just the way he tells a story is amazing and uh I, I could listen to him talk all day long and of course listeners if you've not read a man on the moon why are you listening to our podcast go read now. that right now yeah exactly. like, now go go to amazon go to whatever bookseller you like 
Just order yeah. the damn book. Just get it. Just get it in your paws within a short period. Read it now. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Completely agree. So just want to go back to Jim McDivitt. I think one of the things which is becoming fairly obvious is how loved he is in the community. I want to read this tweet to you, Emily, from Jason Wynn Stanley. Now, funnily enough, our tweet announcing that, that Jim had died, well, not that we announced it, but our tweet saying, rest in peace to uh, Jim, didn't have anything about Jim other than, rest in peace, Jim McDivitt, what a loss. And nothing about anything he'd done and a photo. And it's our most liked tweet ever. Which says a lot, right? I mean, bear in mind other people, other big names have died since we've been doing this and all that kind of stuff. It says a lot about Jim. And we actually had a, before I even said anything with, uh, like this, we had a tweet from one of our followers, Jason Wynn Stanley, who said, he was virtually unknown to the general public, but our community knows just what an immense contribution he made to the early years of human space flight, both as an astronaut and a program manager. If that tweet doesn't sum up what we've just spoken about for the last 30 minutes, I don't know what else could. Exactly. Yeah, he was a superstar in our community. You know, like you said, you know, he may have not been a household name. You know, he wasn't a John Glenn or a Neil Armstrong or something like that. But I think within the space world, he was a giant. He was a superstar because if he just flew Gemini 4 alone, and took all those amazing pictures, he would be known at least as a legend. Yeah. Yeah. That he would be legendary for just doing, you know, doing those beautiful photos. But I think though, within like sort of the diehards in the space community, Apollo nine sort of just put it over the edge because he, he was the first lunar module driver. I mean, he, he drove a spaceship in space for the first time. That's a big deal. It was absolutely required for, you know, for Apollo. You know, that was something they absolutely had to have right for 10, 11 and so forth. So, yeah, he would have been a legend just for one thing. But the fact that he did so much more and he did it in such a with such humility, you know, just makes it even better. Absolutely. So I, I think this is a good time to to move on. But as always, if you enjoyed the interview with Andy, uh, if you're a patron, the video of that interview will go up on our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash space and things. But I've really enjoyed talking about Jim. When anyone dies, Emily, I'm sure you'll agree. It's obviously horrible. But at the same time, hearing everyone's stories and seeing everyone's comments on Space Hipsters and on Twitter and, and on Instagram and their, and their own memories... It's quite cathartic, isn't it? It's also quite a nice thing to experience that kind of collective community experience of of, of saying goodbye to someone actually that I don't even I've never even met. But but do you know what I mean? Like I think it, it helps. Exactly, I I do think it helps. And like you said, there are a few people who I never got to meet, but when they died, I felt it really like boom, like it just it mm. deeply affected me just because of how they affected the rest of the community and I know I knew people had known them and just stuff like that. So I, yeah, it, it, the fact that the community kind of banded together to give him sort of a salute is wonderful. Salute. That's exactly it. And I hope we've given him an adequate, more than adequate salute. I hope uh, in what we've done in the last 30 minutes. Good show, Spider. Well, it was a very nice rocket. That was a rocket. That was a high test. Okay, Houston, we're locked up. 
Unfortunately, McDivitt isn't the only astronaut to have died this week. Lodovic Vandenberg, the first Dutch-born astronaut, died age 90 on October 16th. In April 1985, just after Dave was born, wow, yep. he flew aged 53 on board the Space Shuttle Challenger as a payload specialist on the first fully operational Space Lab Science Module mission. Space Lab sat in the payload bay of the shuttle and gave the astronauts on board a larger area in which to conduct experiments in space. This mission lasted seven days. Vandenberg was a scientist and was picked to be an astronaut specifically for this mission as they wanted someone who understood crystal growth to run the vapor crystal growth system within Space Lab. Uh, that sounds like a crazy experiment. Yeah. In he gave a TED Talk about how all this happened, and Dave will post the video in our show notes. Again, we send our condolences to his friends and family. So for various reasons, it's been three weeks since we last did a news section. So I'm going to do the briefest of roundups, which is a little bit unfair to some of these stories, but there's no way we're going to adequately do any of this justice. There'll be extensive links within the show notes to get you up to date. If you want more information on any of this, just check that out. This is on spaceandthingspodcast.com or click the link in the description of this podcast. So there have been 15 launches in three weeks. Pretty crazy. Again, videos in the show notes. Of human interests of those launches, the Crew-5 mission launched carrying a crew of four to the International Space Station on a SpaceX Dragon capsule. That happened on October the 5th. Since they arrived, the Crew-4 mission has since returned to Earth, splashing down on October 14th. Next, the results are in, and the DART mission, which we spoke about a few weeks ago, successfully changed the flight path of the asteroid it hit last week. So, humans have, for the first time, changed the path of a celestial body. Check out episode 108 if you want more details on that. Artemis 1 is aiming for a 14th of November launch date. A SpaceX Falcon Heavy launch will happen later this month for the first time since 2019. That's always fun. The Perseverance rover snagged its 14th rocket sample on Mars. Firefly, a startup company, declared their first successful launch of their Alpha rocket from Vandenberg. But unfortunately, the payload has already returned to Earth. So you have to read up more to find out why they thought it was a success. Anyway, Japan's first orbital launch attempt of the year didn't go so well. The Epsilon rocket had to be destroyed on its way to space. The CEO of Blue Shift Aerospace ate their biofuel in a CNN interview to prove it wasn't toxic. A Russian cosmonaut who has just returned from space has hit a pedestrian with his car in a tragic accident, although no one was killed, luckily. And there's other stories as well. Basically, quite a lot's happened, but I think I've kind of dipped my toes in enough there to show you what's been going on. As I said, full links in the show notes. But for now, use the rest of the time we've got here. I'd like to have a quick chat with Emily about her latest trip to Houston for the tree dedication service for Jerry Carr. How was that, Emily? That was amazing. The tree ceremonies were started in the 90s by uh, George Abbey because George was friends with Stuart Russa. Uh... And when Stu died, he wanted to have sort of a like a living memorial, I guess, to, to Russa. So they planted the first moon tree and it was dedicated or not moon tree, although Russa has something to do with the moon trees. Obviously, they planted the first memorial tree out there in probably the mid nineties or so. And since then it's just been a tradition, you know, anytime, you know, obviously an astronaut dies also it, um, they have a lot of major like, um, administrators and management in the tree garden. 
as well. So um, it was really a beautiful ceremony. It was really beautiful to see Jerry's family there. His family is awesome, by the way. Mm. This is sad. I hate saying this out loud. All the remaining Skylab guys were there. Wow. I, say, I hate remaining. I'm like, oh, yeah, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, the three Skylab guys are, were there. So, um, yeah, Ed was there and he actually gave a lovely speech. And Jack and Joe Kerwin was there. I actually talked to Joe Kerwin. And I sent nice. him your regards. Thank you. I, I told him, you know, thanks for being on our show. And he was very polite and very happy. Of course, he was very polite. He's Joe Kerwin. He was he was very <laughs> sweet. I hope this doesn't sound too bad because it was a memorial. You know, it was kind of a solemn, serious occasion. But it was nice to run into a lot of my friends there. I, I ran into some friends of mine who work at Johnson. You know, nice. that's always nice. I saw uh, Fred Hayes there. I actually talked to him nice. for a few minutes. You know, as you do. I, as I you saw do. my friend Fred Hayes there. But yeah, we talked for a few minutes. He's funny. He's like, Hey, Emily, I knew you'd be here for a Skylab event. Amazing. And did I see that you got a special tour as well of the campus? Yes, I have a couple friends who work at JSC. And I want to make it clear that this tour is not free for everybody. Uh, and I was badged as well to get into Johnson as well. I had wow. a, a temporary like a visitor badge. So it was, it was you know, legal for me to get in there. I don't want to make it so like, yeah, I broke into Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> but I snuck into a window and got yeah. into Johnson. No, I have a couple friends who uh, kind of walked me around and showed me some of the major buildings there. And I got to see the the history office. Nice. It was just really cool. I'm still like freaking out a little bit. And it was neat. I sort of had a for all mankind moment. I stood in front of the building one and was like, I got a picture. My friend took a picture. And I was like, yeah, I'm. I'm in charge, damn it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I sort of indulged in my fake alternate history fantasy or something like that. So it was fun. Um, I'm going back on the 27th because Phil Chapman is having a, a memorial tree ceremony. And I was actually going to do the speech. Oh, wow. That's a yeah. huge honor. Yeah, it is a huge honor. So I'm I'm going to be there again in a couple weeks. What an honor. This tree garden, can anyone go there? Is it one of those behind closed doors things, which I think would be nice if it is? It is behind closed doors. I believe you have to be like a badge, somebody badged at Johnson. Um, I don't think anybody can just walk in and visit the sites. I noticed that the largest trees, and I, I could be wrong because I didn't look through all the trees, but um, Neil got a huge tree and it has his footprint the moon oh, nice. under it and john young got a john glenn and john young got gigantic trees probably because you know their stature you know is just kind of unbeatable you know yeah i thought it was funny because john young one time was quoted in an interview i don't want to see no epitaph and he's got the biggest tree in the whole <laughs> thing so i just thought that was i thought that was kind of ironic do you know if the family members are allowed access or is it just really for the people at NASA? That's a good question. I would think the families would be allowed some kind of access to it. That only makes sense to me that they would be allowed to like visit it, you know, and reflect or whatever like that. So I would I would like to think so. The reason I ask is I, I kind of like the fact that there's a, play, a dedicated space in NASA for family and people who were in the program and still in the program to be able to pay their respects to people that have been part of that program. I think that's a nice thing. It is a nice touch. It, it's nice. And it's like I said, it's not just astronauts. There's also management there who was very influential. Uh, I noticed a few names who 
you know, they weren't people who went to space, but they were people mm. who were program managers who were really, you know, thought very high, highly of. And I'm certain, you know, McDivitt's tree is going to probably um, be planted. If I don't know, it may already be planted, but I'm sure his tree is going to be established. They'll put a plaque on it, you know, in the near future because he was obviously, you know, not just an astronaut, but he was also a manager. So he'll be there and he'll have a place of honor as well. I think it's nice that they let, you know, very influential people have sort of a place of honor there. That's It's very nice. Agreed. Absolutely agreed. Man, this, uh, this show's borderline on, on quite depressing, isn't it? It's quite morbid, but, but you know, it happens sometimes. It's the nature of what we do. I think in a way it's sort of joyous that we are remembering them and, you know, remembering all the awesome things they did. You know, and I'm glad that there's places like the, you know, the, the Memorial Tree Garden and, you know, other places that we can, you know, always remember these kinds of people and fondly look back upon, you know, our interactions with them, I guess. You know, that's that's how I try to look at it. I mean, when I got the McDivitt news, I was like, this just sucks because I really loved him. But that was a life really well lived. My memories of him are wonderful. And I can see you talking there, Jim. Too bad I can't uh, read your lips. Okay, that's pretty much it for this week. After last week's episode, we asked you to let us know if there are any space facts which you get wound up by when people in the general public seem to be unaware about them. We got a few great responses. We don't have time for all of them, but here's a few of the great ones. Tracy Steele said that she gets annoyed when people don't understand the role of the command module pilot and thought that all three members of the crew walked on the moon. I totally get that. Richard Lobinski pointed, I hope I've pronounced that right, Richard. <laughs> uh, he pointed out that people often think that Kennedy proposed going to the moon during his speech at Rice University in Texas. That was the, we choose to go to the moon, not because it's easy, but because it's hard speech. Probably one of the greatest pieces of oratory ever, in my opinion. But that was actually a full year and a bit after he made the pledge to go to the moon before the end of the decade in his speech to Congress in Washington. This one really annoys me, too. There were two speeches. Yep, absolutely. Karen Stern sent us a couple of really good ones, but this is one that I can absolutely relate to getting angry about. Uh, there was more than one flight director on Apollo 13, and the most important shift was run by Glenn Lunny. I totally get it. Yeah, absolutely. And finally, Charles Kersey sent us the perfect one to end on. I'm not sure if you're aware of this one, Emily, actually. Did you know that astronauts can't put milk in their coffee and tea? Wow. I've done this one before. It doesn't sound as good as it reads, but I'm going to do it anyway. In space, no one can. Here, you scream. Space and Things has been brought to you by And Things Productions. <laughs>